0: The following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let us pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word now, I pray that your spirit will speak to us. We know these are your words. So, your people are listening. I pray that we would have open ears and soft hearts, even if that wasn't our plan this morning. We thank you for your word. And thank you for your example. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Again, maybe I'm the only one that feels this way, but I think that far too often Christianity is characterized as a list of don'ts, like uh, the church is known for what we're against, not necessarily what we're for. Um, And I believe that's because over the years, I'm guilty of this, much has been made about making sure we don't do what is bad, like, as, as long as we avoid the bad, we'll be all right, right? And But not necessarily making sure that we are about and doing what is good, uh, what the Lord said is good. Mm, Matthew Henry said, we must not only put off anger and wrath, but we must put on compassion and kindness. Not only cease, cease to do evil, but learn to do well. Not only not do hurt to any, but do what is do what good we can to all. Every coin has two sides. And we've been dealing with the bad side. But you have to put on a good as well. So the command in our text this morning, our instruction is to put on all these virtues. Uh, mm, And though I've found that following orders from our commanding officer is a good thing, having proper motivation to follow those orders is even better. What I mean is, we can dutifully obey God's commands in Scripture. God says, be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and forgiving. So that's what we're going to do. That's easy. But simply adhering to a code will only motivate us to go so far. It's just outward behavior. And blind obedience is not necessarily what the Lord is after for us. There's a young man who lives in my house. I won't name him. Uh, But um, you uh, you can't explain how to do something. This is how it must be done. And he will take that in. But until he understands... The why, it must be done. How, doesn't matter. It doesn't get done until he he understands the why. Um, So, he's really good at setting picks now in basketball because he understands why it must be done. Anyway. So, why should we be motivated to put on these virtues other than to just be obedient? This is what God says, this is what I'm going to do. Paul answers the questions four words into verse 12 as God's chosen ones holy and beloved he doesn't say as God's mindless drones he says as God's chosen ones holy and beloved and these words are not by accident we can skip over them real quick I was just addressing the letter right so let's go on to the meat now The order of the words follows the order of things. Eternal election, God's chosen ones, God's elect, that comes first. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 says, He chose us in Him, that's the church, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Uh, Richard Bengel said, uh, eternal election precedes sanctification in time, but the the sanctified feel love and then imitate it. This is how it goes. We're elected before we knew anything about it. God shows us before we're even born. We have no control over that. And as we realize that we are chosen, we become more sanctified, set apart, made more like a Christ, and we feel God's love, and then we imitate it. We are God's chosen, the elect. We are, through faith in Christ, made holy, set apart by God for God, and above all that we are God's beloved, dearly loved by God our Father. Far too often, unfortunately, as we've already heard this morning, there are too many kids in the world who don't understand the love of a father. Maybe even you here today not have a good experience or don't think you had a good experience about uh, experiencing the love of a father. And so understanding, <clears throat> understanding God's love, it doesn't make sense to us. And where we didn't have a good example, God is now the best example of a father's love for us. We are holy and dearly loved. Hmm. Our obedience to the command to put on these virtues can be motivated by the Bible says it, so I do it, kind of mindless attitude, which I guess is technically correct, but it's hollow and it's empty. Because the Lord is not just after changed behavior. Christianity is not a behavioral modification program. Through faith in Christ, our behavior changes at the heart level because our heart is different now. Only then will our obedience be motivated by our identity in Christ. Our behavior changed because we are changed. We are not what we once were. And so we don't act as we once did. What we do is born out of who we are in Christ. This is about identity overhaul, not simply behavioral modification. We are not what we once were. Do you know that? Do you know that's true? Through faith in Christ, you don't just add another thing on your list of things to do. Now I have to go to work and clean the house, walk the dog and pray and read my Bible and go to church all the time. No. No. We are God's elect, chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be adopted by faith, and as such, we are set apart from the world. We are something totally different from what we once were. We are no longer objects of God's wrath. Instead, we are continued objects of his unfailing love. Friends, this ought to motivate us to be different. Hmm. So, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. In the Greek, it says, put on bowels of mercy. Yeah, doesn't that truly get it? That gets the point. In the first century, uh, people thought the seat of feelings and emotions was in the belly, not the heart. I'm not sure it isn't still the belly because I'm motivated by my belly to do a lot of things. We are to clothe ourselves in compassion and mercy in our inmost parts, tender sympathy towards others, to make this the constant attitude of our hearts towards other people. In our culture, we don't necessarily want to be bothered with other people. Let me ask you, when you walk down the street, when was the last time someone looks you in the face and says, hello, and just keeps walking, not stop and talk, just greeting someone on the street? Ever experienced that before? I do it at the dump. It's a lot of fun. Just, you, gotta, you know, there's people there, you got to talk to them. It's a good exercise. And you make friends and reflect the love of Christ to people. We are not living in a vacuum, Right? This is to see people how Jesus Christ sees people through eyes of mercy and compassion. When we don't recognize that people are even there, you know, even brush by them and don't acknowledge them, this is not what Christ did for us and this is not what we do for other people. Hmm. If we are to put on compassionate bowels, I mean compassionate hearts, See, yes, seeing people as Jesus sees them, the exercise of that compassion is what is called kindness. Um, I, I like to study these words because uh, words, the meaning of words tends to change over a course of time. So when you say someone is kind, uh, what, what Paul said when someone is kind might be a little different than how we understand it. When we think of someone who is kind, we think of someone who is nice, right? Someone who is polite, that might actually greet you in the street, or some kind of weirdo, you know? Uh, but kindness is not niceness. It's not the same thing. Kindness is the fruit of compassion. It's acting out compassion. It's meeting the needs of those on whom you have compassion, right? Providing something beneficial for someone. It used to be known as benevolence, Right? This is what kindness is, the act of compassion. Ephesians 2.6 says that God the Father shows the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Moved by compassion, God displayed his kindness. He, he displayed his compassion by sending Jesus to meet our greatest need the need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That's what kindness is. Is God nice to us? You know it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Sometimes we get chastised. Sometimes we get uh, rebuked. Nobody likes that. It's not very nice to point out someone else's fault. But in his compassion, he displayed it by his kindness in sending Jesus to us to meet our great need. Hmm. So we put on compassionate hearts and kindness, and next we put on humility. Hmm. Humility has been called the chief virtue of the Christian. And a lot, about, a lot has been said about humility, but its purest definition is to have a proper, a proper estimate of oneself before God. It's not going around telling people how lousy you are. I'm such a jerk. You're just being humble. Uh, No, that's not humility. Uh, It's not the same. It's to recognize the reality of what we truly are. And what we truly are is in desperate need of God's grace. And it's to the humble that God promises to give grace. James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5 both quote the Proverbs that says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Philippians chapter 2, I think, has the best definition of humility in action. In verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more significant than yourselves. Just put the needs of others first. Hmm. Philippians 2 also goes on to show how Jesus was the ultimate display of humility Jesus didn't say that he was bad. He didn't say that he was uh, evil or, or dumb. In his humility, Jesus considered us, God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, to be more significant than himself. And he offered his life in our place on the cross. That's what humility is. Putting others before yourself. And we are to put on humility just as Christ put on humility. To put in our thoughts and our needs on the back burner for the benefit of others. Not only are we to put on humility as Christ did, we also to put on meekness. Mm. This is a funny word. What do you think of when you think of meek? Somebody's quiet and mousy, maybe scared. Not real bold and outgoing. Is that what you think of? Meek? That's not what it is. So you're wrong. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> meekness, this is, I, I, meekness is one of my favorites. Meekness is power under control, the willingness to waive your rights for a good cause. That's what meekness is. This is, again, a demonstration of the hard attitude of humility, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I used to hear that in the machine shop a lot. Carrying some great big piece of steel just because I could, young and dumb and blah, 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 you know. And they say, don't do that. You're going to kill yourself. And I can do it until I drop it and squash my toes. That's bad. Power under control, strength under control. It's meekness that allows people to ride a horse. Do you know that? It's not meekness in the people, it's in the horse. The animal has great power, but it has been trained to control that power for the good of the rider. Meekness in us, horses, might look like giving grace to someone who has wronged you instead of coming down on them with both feet. It's meekness that keeps me from calling out my son during a sermon this morning. But meekness is not weakness. See, I screwed it up because I did it. Sorry, he wasn't listening. Meekness is not weakness. It takes a great deal more strength to exercise self-control, especially when we feel wronged and our hackles are up and we're ready to pounce. Jesus is again the ultimate example of meekness. He said in Matthew 11:29, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." To think about Christ referring to himself as meek is amazing. Christ is the instrument of God's creation. Okay? The Christ himself displayed his meekness by emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He is the one that holds the universe together. Scientists can't explain why our atoms stick together. Jesus does. He is the explanation. And yet, though he holds our atoms together, He allowed himself to be beaten and mocked and scorned and crucified. The one who thought up the atomic structure of iron allowed iron to be used to nail his hands and feet to the cross. That's meekness. He had the power to make the iron disappear and the soldiers poof and vanish. But he didn't because he was looking ahead to the benefit of others. When Jesus was arrested in the garden and one of the disciples struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, Jesus said, don't you think I can appeal to my father and he will send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must be this way? Jesus is the perfect display of power under control. Meekness. Verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. We'll just skip over this one. (laughs) Patience and bearing with one another. This goes hand in hand. You ever pray for patience? <laughs> you don't just get it, you get trained in it. All right? Oh boy. What does it mean to be patient and bear one another? Hmm. Basically, we are to endure one another's exasperating conduct and not kill each other. All right? We bear with one another, endure each other's conduct in hope of a better mind and consequent improvement on the part of the offender. It's allowing, allowing people to wrong you. That's no fun. But this doesn't mean that we ignore bad behavior. We can be patient and bear with one another and still show our brother or sister their fault in love and in this way we show great love and support for each other we can't ignore the sin we see in our brothers and sisters but we also must resist the temptation to punish them or to write them off or be provoked by their sin what's our example of patience and bearing with others isn't it Jesus father didn't write us off he endured and continues to endure our exasperating behavior he doesn't he didn't choose to smite us like the old far side button with God uh, cartoon with God's finger on the smite button right just ready to zap us because of our behavior he didn't choose to do this what did he do in his patience and forbearance, he sent us a rescuer. He sent us rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, alongside the heart attitude of patience and forbearance goes forgiveness. Verse 13 says, if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive. <sighs> well, you know there's a strategy to forgiveness. Uh, I'll tell you, forgiveness is not just simply glossing over or ignoring a wrong done to you. Oh, they kicked me in the leg. It's okay. Uh, they... Kick my cat. That's oh, all right. Oh, he stole my lunch my lunch out of the refrigerator at work. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> Moving on. Hmm. Forgiveness is not glossing over. Forgiveness is not ignoring a wrong, especially between brothers and sisters. This are oh, like um, when you get something stuck in you, maybe I hear of birdshot for hunters, get a pellet, embedded it in the skin, and don't dig it out. And it just heals over. right? But it's still there. And it's never right until you get that thing out of there. Forgiveness is the same way. The wrong must be confronted in love. First, that needs to get dug out. God does not gloss over our sin, does he? He does not ignore it, does he? He didn't. Instead, he gave us a means to deal with it and be done with it. As far as our own need for forgiveness by God, we have to confess our fault first. We must repent, very popular topic, turn from it, and then we will be forgiven. Can't forget that. Just keep on sinning. I'm already forgiven, so that gives me license to do whatever I want. No, it doesn't. Sin is still sin. That's not going to change. Just because Jesus came and died and dealt with the eternal consequence of our sin doesn't mean that sin no longer exists. We're still tempted. We still sin. We still fall short of the glory of God. But by his grace, we have a means to forgiveness through Jesus. Mm. The same is true for the need for forgiveness between people. The offense must be confronted and loved, confessed and repented of, forgiven and then forgotten. This is how the Lord does it for us. It's exactly how it works. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't see it in us anymore. It's so the, how the Lord does it for us and is how we must do it for each other. Matthew 18 is a great outline for this. I encourage you to look that up on your own time for further study. What we must remember is that God the Father freely forgives and graciously forgives and that he is our model to follow. We can't forget how much we have been forgiven because when we do, Remember, it will motivate us to forgive others even more. Who am I to withhold forgiveness? I know what I've been forgiven for. Hmm. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are indeed called in one body, and be thankful. And we've talked about this love before, agape love. Do you remember? This agape love is the belt over our new overcoat that holds it all together. We have dealt with this true definition of agape love. Remember, it's hearts and flowers and all about how you feel. No, it's not. Agape love To love is to consciously choose to put the good of others before our own. Isn't that exactly what we've been talking about? Consciously choosing the good of others, feeling compassion and exercising it in acts of kindness, humbling ourselves and putting the needs of others first, controlling whatever power or strength we might have for the good of someone else, being patient and bearing with the exasperating behavior of our brothers and sisters. And forgiving others as the Lord has forgiven us. This is love. This is how love binds them all together. These heart attitudes and actions are all outward looking. All outward focus. They see the needs and the faults and the failures of others. But in response to God the Father's attitude and actions towards us. We respond to others with love and grace. When we see it from this perspective, loving because we are loved, acting this way because God acted this way towards us, showing mercy because we have been shown mercy, only then can we truly allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts as we have been called together in one body to do. And we will be thankful when we do so. Verse 15 of Colossians 3 was the first verse I ever taught anyone on uh, when I was a counselor at Camp Adventure way back in 1995 before half of you were born. And it is verse 15 of Colossians 3 is further evidence of God's love for baseball. You can't see it there? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It could easily be translated. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire of your hearts. Actually more would be the umpire of your bowels, I guess. But we'll let it we'll we'll let it stay at hearts. <clears throat> this is an athletic term, right? Rule in your hearts. The is a Athletic term in the Greek pertaining to the authority that establishes the rules, governs the contests, and hands out the prizes. That's what the umpire does. And it's this peace, not the warm feeling of ethereal bliss that we're going to get from all our yoga poses, but the peace between a holy God and a sinful man. Made possible by his grace through Christ's death on the cross. That is to temper our every relationship. That's the peace that is to govern over how we feel and how we act. The peace of Christ is to be the umpire. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are made acceptable to God. Our sins are forever dealt with. The Father proved his compassion, his kindness, his humility his meekness, his patience, his forbearance, his forgiveness, and his love through Jesus. Our challenge, with his help, is to reflect his character as his children. And we have the perfect model to follow, and that's Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever thank you for showing your compassion through kindness to us in Jesus? Showing your humility and meekness? Putting our needs before your own? Our need for forgiveness before your need for glory? God, we are so grateful. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you and has not experienced your compassion and kindness, your forbearance and patience, your humility and meekness and forgiveness, I pray that this morning they would ask you for forgiveness. They would turn from their sin, put off the old way and put on the new as we've been discussing this morning simply turning to you in faith and asking for forgiveness for their sin and turning over control of their lives to you. I pray that we would all do that. We would all continuously turn over control of our lives to you, that the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts as one body and be thankful, for we are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.